today on Legalese. We have a number of updates on cases that I have been tracking as part of my annual Supreme Court Roundup. Uh, and specifically today, we've got three really interesting cases about gun rights and the Second Amendment. Hey, greetings, everybody, and welcome back once again to Legalese. As always, I am your host, Bob, and I want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you happen to be new to my channel, let me especially welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Now, real quick, I just want to remind you guys that you find out more about the show or about myself as well. Uh, you can go to our homepage over at LegalEasePodcast.com uh, where you will get uh, updates from me. Uh, you can uh, contact us. You can uh, find links. You can find past episodes of the show. All kinds of cool stuff you can do over there. And if you want to always stay up to date with my latest content, uh, because I do release a lot of stuff. I put out videos on YouTube. There's an audio version on Spotify. Uh, I also uh, do articles over on Substack. And if you want to get notifications for all of that, all you have to do is go sign up for my newsletter over at LegallyShow.com and you will get uh, all my content uh, curated and, and you'll be notified of it as soon as it is up. So go check that out. And I have one not regular announcement here at the beginning, and I'm kind of excited about this. And uh, I have been invited to come back on the Freedom Hub uh, podcast on Thursday, November 16th at noon Eastern time. Uh, if some of you may remember, I was on there last year. They brought me on to talk about classical republicanism and the Articles of Confederation. They're bringing me back to talk about the Implied Powers Doctrine, as well as my book about the Implied Powers Doctrine, Constitutional Slate of Hand. And it was a great time last time I was on. I'm sure it'll be a great time this time. And if you want to join us and be there, you can, and it is free. All you have to do uh, is go to the Freedom Hub page and you sign up for their uh, Thursday webinar group, and they will send you uh, a link to a private Zoom meeting where we will be doing this as a live stream. And you can join us there for the live stream, uh, which is also followed by a Q&A, which anyone can take part in. And so uh, I really hope that I will see some of you there uh, to check out uh, that event. Uh, otherwise, it'll be up on social media a few days after we record it. Uh, but yeah, it's a really good time. If you're able to come and, and check it out and be there with us on Thursday, uh, it should be really interesting. All right, well, let's get down to business. So as I mentioned off the top, we are going to be talking about three Second Amendment cases that are going before the Supreme Court this term. Now, one is a case that we have already discussed quite a bit, but there's a lot of updates going on with this, so I'm going to be filling you in on that. And then two of them are actually cases that the court uh, recently just agreed to hear. They just would grant cert last week. Uh, and so I am going to be filling you in as to the background of those cases. Now, these are the three cases we are going to be talking about. 
the updated one is going to be United States v. Rahimi. Now, of course, we covered this case in my initial SCOTUS roundup back on October 2nd. Now, last week, the court heard oral arguments in this case. Uh, and if anyone out there, I would say, has the time and the inclination to go listen to the full 90 minutes of oral arguments, it was a really interesting session. I will, of course, have it linked in uh, the show notes page for this episode. Now, I understand that a lot of people have neither the time nor the inclination to go and listen to 90 minutes of uh, lawyers arguing. Uh, so today, what I'm going to be doing is providing you guys with my own cliff note summary of what was discussed there. I, I will be pointing out to you guys some of what I believe uh, are going to be the key moments during these arguments where the questions the court asked and the answers the attorney gave uh, are going to really be crucial elements on which the case is likely to turn. And then after that, I will finish by uh, giving you my prediction about exactly where this case is going to go uh, and its likely outcome. But before we do that, we need to talk about the other two cases, uh, Garland v. Cargill and NRA v. Volo. Now, Garland v. Cargill isn't an entirely new case. Uh, it is a case that we talked about back in January when the Fifth Circuit issued their opinion in the case. And uh, since then, the government has appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, and so they are agreeing to review the case uh, that was as decided by the Fifth Circuit. Now, this is the case that is asking whether a bump stock is a machine gun. Now, just a quick refresher, the Fifth Circuit's primary holding for this case when they issued their opinion was that the definition of machine gun set forth in the National Firearms Act and Gun Control Act does not apply to bump stocks, and even if the language was ambiguous, which it was not, the court would still apply the rule of lenity to interpret statutes against imposing criminal liability. And of course, the rule of lenity is an old uh, common law uh, legal doctrine that says when a statute is ambiguous, it should always be uh, construed in the defendant's favor as far as possible. Now, the holding, as you might have guessed from the name of the uh, case, is being appealed by Merrick Garland. I'm sure many of you know Merrick Garland as Joe Biden's current attorney general. Uh, some of you might also be familiar with his passion project, which is moonlighting as one of our nation's most accomplished droopy dog impersonators. Now, in Garland v. Cargill, the Supreme Court has decided to grant cert on the following question presented. So, since 1986, Congress has prohibited the transfer or possession of any new machine gun according to 18 U.S.C. Section 92201, the National Firearms Act, and 26 U.S.C. Section 5801, which define machine gun as any weapon which shoots, is designed to shoot, or can readily be restored to shoot automatically, 
more than one shot without manual reloading by a single function of the trigger. The statutory definition also encompasses, quote, any part designed and intended solely and exclusively or in combination of parts designed and intended for use in converting a weapon into a machine gun, end quote. Now, according to the brief filed by petitioners, they say a bump stock is a device designed and intended to permit users to convert a semi-automatic rifle so that the rifle can be fired continuously with a single pull of the trigger discharging potentially hundreds of bullets per minute. In 2018, a mass shooting in Las Vegas carried out using a bump stock. Uh, and since then, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives have published an interpretive rule concluding that bump stocks are machine guns as defined in Section 5845B. In the decision below, the en banc Fifth Circuit held that the ATF rule was unlawful because the statutory definition of machine gun does not encompass bump stocks. And with all that in mind, the question presented for the court is as follows. Whether a bump stock is a machine gun as defined by 26 U.S.C. 5845B because it is designed and intended for use in converting a rifle into a machine gun, i.e. into a weapon that fires automatically more than one shot by a single function of the trigger. Now, of course, that description of a bump stock is just quite literally and, and technically false, uh, but I guess that's probably beside the point here. Now, when asked about how he feels uh, implementing uh, gun control by way of introducing Orwellian Newspeak into the Code of Federal Regulations, uh, Merrick Garland was heard to reply, You know what? I'm the hero. All right. So we are going to be now moving on to the second marriage case which is the National Rifle Association of America v. Bolo. Now, at issue in this case is whether the First Amendment allows a government regulator to threaten regulated entities with adverse regulatory actions if they do business with a controversial speaker as a consequence of the government's own hostility to the speaker's viewpoint or a perceived general backlash against the speaker's advocacy. Now, even though on paper, this is strictly a First Amendment case. I am sure that Ray Charles could see through Stevie Wonder's eyes why I began by referring to this as a Second Amendment case. Obviously, the sole reason the New York State politicians and bureaucrats are violating the free speech and equal protection rights of our nation's oldest and most effective civil rights organization is because they are actively hostile towards the civil liberty that this organization chooses to advocate for. Now, in this case in particular, the plaintiff appellee, the National Rifle Association, claims that the defendant appellant, Maria T. Vallo, the former superintendent of the New York State Department of Financial Services, violated his rights to free speech and equal protection when she investigated three insurance companies that had partnered to provide coverage for losses resulting from gun use and encouraged banks and insurance companies to consider discontinuing their relationship with gun promotion organizations. Now, the NRA contends that Volo used her regulatory power to threaten NRA business partners and coerce them into disassociating with the NRA 
in violation of their rights. And because this is the one case uh, here that we have never talked about in any capacity before on this show, I'll try and give you here just real quick the TLDR version of the procedural history of this case. As always, the full context can be found in the court records, which are always made available on the show notes page for the current episode. Now, because the alleged violations of the NRH, uh, NRA's free speech and equal protection rights, the NRA would bring suit initially in district court against then-Governor Andrew Cuomo and then-DFS Superintendent Maria Volo in both their individual and their official capacities. Now, on a Rule 12b6 motion to dismiss, uh, Ms. Volo would argue that she was entitled to absolute and qualified immunity on the selective enforcement claim and to qualified immunity on the First Amendment issue. Now, when that case went before the district court, uh, Ms. Volo's motion was was granted in part and denied in part. The selective enforcement claim against Ms. Volo was dismissed. The motion is denied as to the First Amendment claims, and the appeal of Judge Hummel's decision granting leave to amend is also denied. And when this went to the Second Circuit, the Second Circuit's primary holding would reverse the district court's denial of defendants' motion to dismiss the free speech and equal protection claims against them. The court would remand this case with directions for the district court to enter judgment for the defendants. So the NRA is seeking review on the judgment of the Second Circuit. And the Supreme Court has agreed to hear this case on the following question presented. They start out by talking about the case Bantam Books v. Sullivan held that a state commission with no formal regulatory power violated the First Amendment when it deliberately set out to achieve the suppression of publications through informal sanctions, including the threat of invoking legal sanctions and other means of coercion, persuasion, and intimidation. Now, the respondent here, wielding enormous regulatory power as the head of the New York Department of Financial Services, applied similar pressure tactics, including back-channel threats, ominous guidance letters, and selective enforcement of regulatory infractions to induce banks and insurance companies to avoid doing business with Petitioner, a gun rights advocacy group. And the respondent targeted Petitioner explicitly based on his Second Amendment advocacy, which the DFS's official regulatory guidance deemed a reputational risk to any financial institution serving the NRA. Now, the Second Circuit would hold such conduct is permissible as a matter of law, reasoning that this age of enhanced corporate social responsibility justifies regulatory concerns about general backlash against a customer's political speech. And accordingly, the question presented before the court is, does the First Amendment allow a government regulator to threaten regulated entities with adverse regulatory actions if they do business with a controversial speaker as a consequence 
of the government's own hostility to the Speaker's viewpoint or a perceived general backlash against the Speaker's advocacy. Now, initially, in the cert petition that the NRA filed, they had a second question after that one on their QP that read, does such coercion violate a clearly established First Amendment right? However, the court chose to grant cert only on this limited review that sticks to that first question. All right, and with that, let's move on to Rahimi. So, this challenge came to the court in the case of Zaki Rahimi, who was the subject of a February 2020 protective order in a Texas state court after an incident in which he assaulted his then-girlfriend, who is also the mother of his child, and fired a gun at a witness to the incident. Now, the protective order barred Rahimi from going near his former girlfriend's home and workplace, and it also prohibited him from having a gun. And in 2021, police would search Rahimi's home because he was a suspect in a series of shootings. While there, they found a rifle and a pistol, and he was thus charged with violating 18 U.S.C. Section 922G8, which applies to any person who is subject to a court order and that restrains that person from harassing, stalking, or threatening an intimate partner or engaging in other conduct that would place an intimate partner in reasonable fear of bodily injury. And certainly Rahimi's domestic violence restraining order would fit. Now, such an order also prohibits you from being in possession of a firearm at least as long as the order is in place. Now, Rahimi sought to have the charge against him dismissed, arguing that the law is unconstitutional. He made his argument in the wake of the Supreme Court's 2022 decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol v. Bruin, in which the justices explained that courts should uphold gun restrictions only if there is a tradition of such regulation in U.S. history. Now, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit agreed and threw out Rahimi's conviction, although the government, the Fifth Circuit said, is not required to find what they called a historical twin to Section 922G8. The Court of Appeals would say that what they had offered was not the kind of well-established and representative analog required to uphold the law. And this brings us to the primary issue that this case means to address, which is, does 18 U.S.C. section 922 G8, which prohibits the possession of firearms by persons subject to domestic violence restraining orders, violate the Second Amendment on its face? Now, the Supreme Court appeared, uh, during oral arguments, at least to me, very much ready to uphold a federal law that would bar anyone subject to a domestic violence restraining order from possessing a gun. A majority of the justices seemed very wary of the consequences of allowing this ruling by a federal appeals court that, would struck, that struck down this law and to let it stand. Now, Representing the federal government in this case was the U.S. Solicitor General uh, Elizabeth Preloger, 
who emphasized what she described as the destabilizing consequences of the Fifth Circuit's ruling. Relying on a similar test, she noted, other federal courts have relied on the lack of a historical analog to strike down other gun restrictions, including a federal ban on the possession of guns by felons and the possession of guns that have their serial numbers removed. But the Supreme Court in Bruin, pre-Loger contended, recognized that Congress can take away guns from individuals who are not responsible law-abiding citizens. And she gave some examples. She said, for example, people who have been, uh, who were loyalists to the British cause during the Revolutionary War, as well as uh, contemporaneously uh, felons and drug addicts. Now, some of the justices would press Preloger on what it meant for someone to be a, quote, responsible or, quote, law-abiding citizen. Now, Chief Justice Roberts would say responsibility is a very broad concept. Would someone who doesn't take his recycling out to the curb on the proper day be irresponsible? And the Solicitor General would respond by defining responsibility as intrinsically tied to the danger you would present if you had access to firearms. Now, there is an interesting point here that I want to try and press home as well, because I happened to be reading along with the transcripts while I was listening to the audio in this case, um, and I realized that one of the most consequential parts of these arguments is something that anyone merely reading the transcript could have very easily overlooked. And the vast majority of people who even bother to uh, pay attention to oral arguments uh, tend to just read and, and scan uh, the transcript. So I think it's important to try and point this out here. Now, Besides the other categories that the Solicitor General had been talking about, uh, which were, you know, responsible and law-abiding citizen, there was uh, another additional category of persons that she was re repeatedly referring to, and that was dangerous individuals. Now, the court and the attorneys had no problem accepting that a domestic abuser with a history of various assault and battery charges would certainly fall within what the court has recognized as a traditionally dangerous individual. Now, later, Justice Barrett would return to this and would press the Solicitor General about what would happen in a case where the defendant is not dangerous. Now, the Solicitor General would respond, you don't need to resolve that issue here. This is a case just about someone who is not responsible in the form of being dangerous. To this, Justice Barrett would reply, But you're trying to save, like, the range issue. So you're not applying dangerousness to the crime. Now here, Justice Barrett was referring to a case, Garland v. Range. Range presents a question of whether a person convicted of making false statements to obtain food stamps is subject to a disqualification under Section 922G1. However, 
if you were only skimming the transcripts, as many people do, you would have very easily missed that reference because range was both lowercase and not italicized. There was no uh, sign that she was talking about an actual case name there. Now, on June 6th of 2023, uh, an en banc review by the Third Circuit held that under Bruin, uh, this case, we're talking about the Range case, uh, that Range could not be disarmed uh, because of the reason that they disqualified him, uh, which was being convicted of making false statements to obtain food stamps uh, back in 1995, mind you, 30 years ago. Um, anyways, four months later, the Solicitor General would file a cert petition to the Supreme Court in Range. Now, I point this out to contrast it to uh, Rahimi, because the Solicitor General would file a cert petition 15 days after the panel on the Fifth Circuit reviewed Rahimi, and they gave their en banc decision in that case. Furthermore, the Solicitor General has really made it a habit to skip en banc review of the Fifth Circuit. but. The Solicitor General, actually, interestingly here, did not, when, uh, when petitioning for cert, did not ask the court to grant cert in range right away. Rather, she urged the court to hold range pending Rahimi. And I think perhaps you can start to imagine why. Because Rahimi, and again, these are both very... Similar cases, they are both under Section 922G of that particular law. And when you look at them between the two of them, Rahimi presents the absolute worst facts possible for a Second Amendment case. Meanwhile, a person who engaged in welfare fraud more than 30 years ago is a far more sympathetic defendant. Now, in range, the respondents told the court to grant the government's petition even though they won in the lower court, and you never see this happen. Now, the government's reply brief filed six days before Rahimi was argued once again urged the court to hold back on range pending Rahimi. So, going back to Justice Barrett, she asked the Solicitor General, but you're trying to save, like, the range issue, so you're not applying dangerousness to the crimes. And uh, the Solicitor General would respond that is correct. And she added that, we think that there are additional arguments that can be made to defend felon disarmament, and that those depend on the unique history and tradition with respect to criminal conduct. And looking ahead, the Solicitor General said we would hope to have the opportunity to present those arguments and perhaps persuade you in a future uh, case. And Barrett interrupted her and, and said, in that case, perhaps, uh, talking about range. Now, after some discomfort and some crosstalk, uh, the Solicitor General would answer yes. 
Now, it's really amazing because when you listen to this, you can hear the nervousness and the discomfort in the Solicitor General's response as she is trying to answer that question about a very particular case as though that case doesn't exist. She refused to say, we will discuss those facts in range, which is obviously what she meant. And she then tried to give a much more generic answer to the same question by saying, we'll discuss them in any future case that might come up at some point. Now, the significance of all this is that they do not want to even recognize the existence of their very questionable and facially unconstitutional case in range until they have already secured this slam-dunk easy win and they have the precedent in place after Rahimi to violate to a rights much easier of people like range because they have a ruling on this law. Now, I've clipped this exchange so you guys can listen for yourself and see if you pick up on what I'm talking about here. So could I just say it's dangerousness? Let's say that I agree with you that when you look back at surety laws and the fray laws, et cetera, that it shows that the legislature can make judgments to disarm people consistently with the Second Amendment based on dangerousness. We Why can't I just say that? We certainly agree that that's what history and tradition show. We think that defines the scope of the category of those who are not responsible. We don't think dangerousness is the standard with law abiding, and I recognize you might have some different views on that, Justice Barrett. You don't need to resolve that issue here. This is a cat. This is a case just about someone who is not responsible in the form of being dangerous. So, yes, we would be happy with a decision that says legislatures for time immemorial throughout American history have been able to disarm those who are dangerous. But you're trying to save, like, the range issue. So you're not applying dangerousness to the crimes. That's correct. We think that there are additional arguments that can be made to defend felon disarmament and that those depend on the unique history and tradition with respect to criminal conduct. And so we would hope to have the opportunity to present those arguments and perhaps that case. Persuade you in a future case, yes. Thank you. So, essentially, uh, it it seems like what is going to happen is Range and Rahimi are going to end up likely becoming companion cases. Now, even if Rahimi loses by a lopsided margin, it's possible that Range could pull out a victory by the same margin from Bruin. And, in fact, the court may be able to even split those cases in a way so as to not have to water down Bruin. In fact, the court could even vacate and remand Rahimi in light of range, though I highly doubt that that is what they are going to do. I I think the government is very much correct uh, in their approach here in guessing that the more negative case of Rahimi will negatively impact range, and it will not be that range positively impacts Rahimi. Though, that part is, I must admit, far from certain. Now, I have to commend Merrick Garland on precisely how uh, he and the Solicitor General have handled these two cases. Because I deplore the thing that they are hoping to accomplish by juggling the cases this way. But I just, I have to recognize the fact that 
you know, from a litigation standpoint, this is a tactically brilliant move on their part, and I always respect the hustle. This was clearly done to do as much violence to the Second Amendment as possible, and I think they did a very good job of it, unfortunately. Now, in fact, when Merrick Garland was reached for comment on this strategy, all that he said was, You mean old dragon? I'm gonna slay you. So, getting back to the oral arguments in Rahimi, we've so far only discussed the government side of the case. However, by any measure, we have to say that things did not go well for Mr. Rahimi. It quickly became apparent before he even finished his opening remarks that Rahimi's attorney was a hapless idiot. And the very best thing at this point that Rahimi can hope for is that his attorney didn't cause Rahimi to end up with an even worse outcome than if he had never had an attorney to begin with. Now, going into this case, based on his procedural history in the lower court and their very faithful application of the Bruin standard that came out in Rahimi's favor in the Fifth Circuit, uh, and including this court's current tendency to give much more deference to the Second Amendment in recent years uh, than they have in the past, on those grounds, uh, before hearing oral arguments in this case, I thought it was very likely Rahimi might have been able to get by with a five-vote majority. But by the end of his counsel's opening remarks, I saw him losing the case on a not-even-close 7-2 split. And by the time closing arguments had been made and the case had been submitted in full, it was clear that Rahimi will be losing his case on an 8-1 split if not a unanimous nine vote to reverse the holding of the Fifth Circuit. I suppose this is what the Fifth Circuit gets for taking the Supreme Court at its word when it comes to Bruin. Now, following his opening arguments, Rahimi's attorney, J. Matthew Wright, faced a much tougher reception from the justices than did the Solicitor General. Now, Chief Justice Roberts made clear that, in his view, Rahimi was someone who should not have a gun when he said. Your type of situation. So, well, to the but, extent that's pertinent, you don't have any doubt that your client's a dangerous person, do you? Your Honor, I would want to know what dangerous person means. At well, the I moment, mean, someone who's shooting, uh, uh, you know, at people, uh, that's a good start. So, so it, <laughs> that's fair. I'll say this. If and the Chief Justice's obvious question, uh, Rahimi's lawyer's lack of a good answer, and the laughter of the audience should tell you just how badly that case went for them. Now, other justices, of course, also appeared skeptical of Wright's position, uh, which Justice Elena Kagan was interpreting as requiring the government to show a historical regulation of essentially targeting precisely the same kind of conduct as the regulation under review. Now, despite the fact that Wright tried to walk his claim back by calling that a misunderstanding of his argument, uh, 
I don't think it was a misunderstanding, and if it was, it wasn't an unreasonable one. If that's not what he was saying, that's a hell of a lot what it sounded like to me. Now, this seems especially repugnant to me because uh, this argument that he is relying on or appears to be relying on that you must show precisely the same conduct exactly you know every little detail must be identical that is precisely the same argument that we see many of our country's most reprehensible criminals successfully using all the time to get away with their crimes now of course the only difference is when they do it they don't refer to it as a defense they call it qualified immunity. But these are two sides of the same coin. But anyways, finishing up with Rahimi's case, Justice Samuel Alito would chime in asking Wright whether it was his position that, quote, except for someone who has been convicted of a felony, a person may not be prohibited from possessing a firearm in his home, end quote. And... Wright would say yes, but then later hedge on that question, which would prompt Barrett to say that she was, and this is a quote, so confused, end quote. Um, and, God, when Wright answered maybe to a question about whether a legislature could ban the possession of guns by people with mental illnesses, Justice Elena Kagan just tore into him and said that she believed that he was running away from his own argument because he found, he found his implications were just so untenable. Now, Justice Brett Kavanaugh would ask Wright about another possible effect of a ruling in Rahimi's favor. And here, Kavanaugh points to a reply brief that the Biden administration had submitted which indicated that the federal background check system used for the sale of firearms incorporates information from domestic violence protection orders. And if Rahimi prevails, Kavanaugh said, this system could no longer stop persons subject to domestic violence protective orders from buying firearms. Now, what at this point seems a virtual certainty is that the court in this case will be reversing the Fifth Circuit's holding to 18 U.S.C. 922 G8 uh, and holding that it does not violate the Second Amendment. Now, additionally, I think it is very likely that we are going to see a controlling plurality on the court file a very stern concurrence that will give what Justice Kagan referred to at one point as useful guidance to the lower courts on the proper application of Bruin. And when I say proper application, what I mean is a watered-down version of the Bruin test. And when I say a watered-down version of the Bruin test, what I mean is essentially a readoption of their pre-Bruin reading of Heller, in which the court would pretend that Justice Breyer's dissent in Heller was the controlling opinion. Now, this is clearly what Merrick Garland and the Solicitor General were aiming to accomplish with this case, and we need not speculate to determine that. 
The Solicitor General would plainly say as much during oral arguments when she noted, the way constitutional interpretation usually proceeds is to use history and regulation to identify principles, the enduring principles that define the scope of the Second Amendment right. And here, the Solicitor General purports to rebuke and correct the originalist judges on one of the most originalist courts we've ever had about the true meaning and scope of originalism. Now, after decades in which we have seen the most abundant and fruitful scholarship on studying and refining original public meaning, we might just well be expected to be content with getting stuck with identifying principles from history. Well, that is all I got for you guys here today. Thank you so much for joining me here on Legalese. I hope that you enjoyed that. If you do, please take a moment and do all of those things uh, that help to trigger Al Gore's rhythm. If you liked it, hit the like button. If you disliked, hit the dislike button. Uh, subscribe to the channel if you want to see more videos. Definitely leave me a comment. I always really love uh, getting comments from you guys and getting a chance to respond as much as I can. And one thing I haven't been asking you to do, but I really should be, is share the show, please. Please share the show. Um, and in fact, if you can just think of someone right now, just one person you know who you think would find this material interesting, uh, just send it to them, post it to your social media, anything like that. I would be uh, very, very grateful. And of course, don't forget to go to the show notes page and uh, find the information about how you can join me this Thursday for the live stream of my talk at Freedom Hub, uh, talking about the Implied Powers Doctrine. So, anyways, until next time, this has been Bob for Legalese, talking about the Second Amendment, and of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est. You know what? I'm gonna slay you. Fucker, like ELO. Fucker.